Hi, I'm Scott Hervey from Weintraub Tobin. And I'm Josh Escovito with Weintraub Tobin. Welcome to another installment of The Briefing by the IP Law Blog. In the past few years, there have been numerous libel claims relating to unfavorable portrayals of real people in works of fiction, such as television shows or motion pictures, based on real life events. Scott, I understand that you're wor working on an article analyzing these cases and putting together a summary of best practices for producers of these types of films and television programs. Yeah, that's right, Josh. Uh, there have been a number of cases like this. Uh, the first is a case, uh, Mossack Fonseca versus Netflix, which is based on the Netflix portrayal of uh, Panamanian lawyers at the center of the Panama Papers leaked document scandal. Then uh, there's Fairstein versus Netflix, which involves a defamation claim over the portrayal of Linda Fairstein, a former New York City prosecutor uh, that's portrayed in Netflix's series, When They See Us. And then uh, we have what we're gonna talk about today, which is Green versus Paramount Pictures. And that's a defamation suit brought by a former executive at Stratton Oakmont regarding his portrayal in the motion picture, The Wolf of Wall Street. And then there's the false light claim that's made by Olivia de Havilland in her lawsuit against FX networks over the portrayal in the FX docudrama Feud. Uh, what I thought we would do today is we talk about Green v. Paramount because that's pretty, um, it's easy to isolate that one case. And then in my next installment, I'll talk about the de Havilland case and uh, address how the kind of precedent established by the Ninth Circuit in that case will or could affect future libel cases of this nature. I see. And I understand the Green and the de Havilland cases have been resolved, but I believe the Fairstein and the Mossack Fonseca cases are pending. Is that correct, Scott? Yeah, that's right, Josh. Like I said, uh, the de Havilland case, which was, uh, which was resolved, sets um, kind of the standard by which we're going to address these libel claims, at least in California, and I think probably in other uh, states as well. Uh, the Mossack case was transferred to the Central District of California, where it's currently pending, and the Fairstein case was transferred in September to the District Court for the Middle District, uh, sorry, it was transferred from the District Court for the Middle District of Florida to the Southern District in New York. Uh, so the basis of all of these claims, Josh, is really similar. Um, they're all based on a claim of defamation, usually libel, which is, as we all know here, written defamation. So in California, libel is defined by California Code Section 45, and that code section defines libel as a false and unprivileged publication by writing picture, printing, effigy, or other fixed representation, which exposes any person to hatred, contempt, ridicule, and you can't forget obliquy, uh, which causes that person to be shunned or avoided, or which has a tendency to injure that person in his occupation. In most states, libel is defined similarly. In order to establish libel, a plaintiff will have to prove that the statements were defamatory, that the statements were published to third parties, that the statements were false, and that it was reasonably understood by the third parties who heard the statements that those statements were about the plaintiff. 
they really should clean that statute up, Scott. It's hard to read, let alone understand. But my understanding is that where the plaintiff is a public figure, as was the case in the Wolf of Wall Street and feud cases, and that will likely be the case in the two Netflix cases, the plaintiff must also prove by clear and convincing evidence that the statement was made with actual malice, meaning that the defendant knew the statement was false or had serious doubts as to the truth of the statements. That's right, Josh. So let's see uh, how that plays out in the Wolf of Wall Street case. So Andrew Green, he was a director, general counsel, and the head of corporate finance at Stratton Oakmont. He was portrayed in the book, Wolf of Wall Street, and the book was the basis of the movie. Uh, in the book, Green is referred to by his nickname, Wigwam, uh, apparently a reference to his toupee. And in the book, he's described as engaging in a variety of criminal activities. In the motion picture, there's a minor character by the name Nicky Koskoff. Nicky wears a toupee, but he went by the nickname Rugrat. And Nicky is also depicted as engaging in a variety of illegal activities. Green sued Paramount Pictures and the film's producers on the grounds that the Koskoff character presented a defaming portrayal of himself. So the issue in Green's case centered around whether the bad acts attributed to the Koskoff character in the film were about Green. Green would have to show that the fictional Koskoff character was so closely akin to himself that a viewer of the movie, knowing Green, would have no difficulty in linking Green to Koskoff. So in reviewing the case de novo, the Second Circuit upheld the lower court's rejection of Green's libel case on the grounds that Green failed to establish that the defendants acted with knowledge or reckless disregard in making defamatory statements of or about him, right? So they failed to, uh, Green failed to prove actual malice. Said another way, Green failed to prove that the Koskov character was intended to be him. In coming to that conclusion uh, that the defendants did not act with actual malice, the Second Circuit found compelling certain facts which are good guidelines for producers to follow. So first, the court found compelling the fact that the defendants took numerous steps to ensure that no one would be defamed by the film. The producers and the writers reduced the number of characters that appeared in the book and created various composite characters who did not correspond to any single human being, but carried or had a variety of different traits from other real life people. And the producers then also created fictional characters that were designed to convey the atmosphere of Stratton Oakmont, but they had no real life corollary. Um, the court also found based on this that, uh, the re that no reasonable viewer of the film would believe that the producers intended the Koskoff character to be a depiction of Green. Uh, the court found compelling that there's no character in the film named Andrew Green uh, or anybody that goes by the nickname Wigwam. Also, there were distinct differences between the Koskoff character and Andrew Green. In the film, Koskoff, uh, he had a significantly different job than Green. Koskoff was just a floor trader while Green was a general counsel and the head of corporate finance. And then lastly, the, the court pointed to the fact that the producers included a disclaimer 
at the end of the film, which stated that the characters in the film were fictionalized. So creating a fictitious character that is an amalgamation of a number of real characters certainly seems like a good way to avoid a libel claim. However, this is certainly different from the two Netflix cases and the FX cases where the, per where the people portrayed are real people. That's right, Josh. Um, the next time we talk about this, we're going to talk about the Haviland case against FX and the factors that were established by the Ninth Circuit in analyzing cases like this. And then we're going to bring all those factors together and then we're going to analyze um, primarily the Fairstein case and maybe make a prediction on where that might fall based on the facts in the Fairstein case. That sounds great, Scott. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. And if you're interested in more content like this, please uh, check out our YouTube channel and see our blog at the IPLawBlog.com.